Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. Today, I am very privileged to be joined by Rachel Cooper. She's the Director of Transparency International's Health Initiative. We're recording this podcast on the 9th of April 2020. We're in the middle of the COVID-19 global pandemic. Rachel has dedicated her life and career to delivering global health projects across the world, working with governments, international NGOs and medical organisations. And today she shares with us her experience, her insights and her advice on what to do to ensure that we maximise transparency during this global pandemic. Rachel, welcome. Thank you, Katie. It's, it's great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. Rachel, obviously at this time when the COVID-19 pandemic is going crazy around the world, corruption and health are two of the sort of two sides of the same coin. What is corruption in health and and why is it something that we should be aware of and taking heed of? Right. I mean, the, the classic definition of corruption is the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. And it's so important in health because, first of all, health expenditure is so large. I mean, global health spend is about $7.5 $7.5 trillion annually. For many countries, it's, it's one of the major areas of, of public expenditure. And it represents a great investment by hard-earned taxpayers. So it's crucial that it's spent in the right way and in the public interest, in a way that delivers kind of accessible, affordable, equitable healthcare. And if it doesn't, And if it is potentially corrupted, then you have reduced access, you risk economic waste or inefficiency, and ultimately you have lower health outcomes, um, or indeed you can cause harm. And some of the obvious instances of how corruption in health manifests are if you have clinical trial results that are in some way manipulated because researchers and drug companies and funders don't want to publish negative results because everyone always wants to to be able to portray the positive. If you end up publishing those negative results, then you risk other people founding their decisions upon that manipulated data. And then you can have the wrong clinical treatments being developed. So that's one one manifestation. But right at the other end of the healthcare value chain, at the point of service delivery, corruption in health is when your healthcare provider says to his or her patient, yes, I can give you that operation or I can give you that treatment, or you need these drugs, but I need X amount, X number of dollars in order to be able to do it, or I'll be able to do it in six months time, but if you give me this amount, I'll be able to do it next week, or 
I don't really trust the pharmacy in the hospital. So go to the pharmacy around the around the corner, and it's his or her relative that is uh, you know that is owning that pharmacy around the corner. So at, at the very sharp end of service delivery, it is um, a bribe. It's as it's as simple as that. And transparency is often sort of heralded as the solution. I mean, the organisation that you're part of is Transparency International. It's not Bribery and Corruption International. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why at this time, again, is this something that we should be seeking out? What is so important about transparency? Right. I mean, transparency is totally at the heart of, of the answer to corruption. I gave you the, the stats above about you know, $7.5 trillion annually spent on health. But we're seeing how much that is being magnified at the moment. There are huge amounts of resource being committed to the COVID response by uh, governments, by the private sector, into research and development, into vaccines, into treatments, into diagnostics, but also into procurement, into hospitals. You know, various countries have suddenly built hospitals buying personal protective equipment, um, sourcing ventilators. And some of the big international financial institutions have committed vast amounts of money. You know, the World Bank has committed, I think it's $160 billion over 15 months for the COVID response. But procurement, which is where corruption often manifests in health, is complex at the best of times. So, you know, a normal procurement procedure relies on how a tender is structured, where and how they're published, who is eligible to respond. All of those processes are being sped up. They're being streamlined. They're being truncated. Examples of, you know, Zimbabwe is issuing calls for tenders with a closing period of 48 hours, whereas normally it's two weeks. The EU has a joint procurement mechanism for PPE, for personal protective equipment, on behalf of the 26 member states. But but we're not even sure whether that equipment is going to be at the normal certified standards. Of course, all of that needs to be done. All of this is right because it's the best way to fight the pandemic, to minimise lives lost and to maximise the health chances for everyone. But there are dangers in the shortcuts. And I think it's partly about ensuring that we don't uh, lose rigour in favour of speed. So when we're talking about the kind of transparency of the response, we're talking about the potential reduced quality of goods and services. I was talking about those EU procurement mechanisms for for PPE. It's about inflated prices. You know, everyone wants ventilators. So is the price gouging going on with escalating prices because of the escalating demand? Are the the kind of shortcuts providing opportunities for more personal discretion or subjective judgments? rather than, you know, traditional kind of objectivity where there are checks and balances inbuilt to the system, is the biased allocation of resources. And if you can, if you can maintain 
that transparency in the system, you are reducing the scope for corrupting forces manifest. You're giving greater confidence to the public that vaccines, treatments, diagnostics, equipment is going to be safe and effective. And crucially, particularly for lower and middle income countries, where you know the systems are, are less robust and their evidential systems, their data collection mechanisms are, are less sophisticated. This transparency allows real-time learning and adaptation and flexibility in the response. Rachel, what are the impacts of good and bad practice? Ah, impacts of good and bad practice. I mean, they are I think they're manifest in in three ways, procurement, um, in clinical trials, and in lobbying, if you like. So I'll take them one by one, maybe. Procurement. I was mentioning the, the scale of health spend earlier, and it's estimated that 25% of health procurement expenditure is lost to corruption. So when you have scenarios, and I've I've got a couple of examples, where companies that have no credibility to answer a tender are being awarded a tender, then you have to raise red flags and you have to be asking questions about that. There's an example of, uh, I think it's Slovenia, where a gambling company with no experience in the health sector has been awarded a 25 million euro tender for personal protective equipment. Now, is that that really credible? Or in Brazil, where the government has awarded a contract for masks to a company with very close ties to the president. And actually, the red flag there is that that contract that the masks are being charged at nearly or up to 12 times a higher price than mask contracts were awarded earlier in the year in the same country. So, I mean, there are some examples of of kind of bad practice in in procurement. Bad practice in clinical trials, the the, the kind of well-known, if if you like, acknowledged example actually relates to a previous pandemic. And that was swine flu, where after four years of of research to get all the clinical data, it was revealed that Tamiflu, which was the kind of became the, if you like, the kind of recognized response, treatment response, was actually no more useful than paracetamol in treating swine flu, and that there were safety and efficacy concerns. But alongside that, countries had spent $18 billion stockpiling the stuff. So, you know, it's very easy to kind of manipulate in the time of a crisis. But those, those are some examples of bad practice in, in clinical trials. Lobbying. I mean, lobbying is a, a perfectly legitimate activity when it's done in the right way at the right time and transparently. But as we've seen in many countries at the moment, there are um, economic relief packages for the private sector. 
Now, we have to ensure that those relief packages are being administered in a, um, in a transparent way and that companies aren't able to kind of lobby behind the scenes or where conflicts of interest are fully revealed, that, you know, that, that companies aren't in a position to kind of lobby to take advantage of those bailout packages. So it's all about ensuring that the public can hold companies, can hold the government to account. I mean, there was a lovely, a lovely quote from a, a lobbyist in Washington recently in, in the context of, of the pandemic. And he said something along the lines of, you know, communicating by email and cell phone are the keys to the game. Access is great for those that already have access and relationships with the key players. That says it all. You know, if you already know the right people, well, you're in to make a buck. And that's not transparent. So there, there are some examples of, of kind of bad practice in procurement, in clinical trials and lobbying. But there are also examples of good practice. And one of, one of the best known examples, actually, in, in procurement is from Ukraine, where for several years now, uh, following the revolution there, a system called Prozoro has introduced an open procurement tool that's been adopted by the government. It allows transparency of procurement activities, and those activities can then be fully monitored by civil society. It's, it's saved millions for the, um, for the Ukrainian taxpayer, and it's now being adapted for emergency procurement mechanisms so that when they are procuring items of equipment, they know who has won the tender, what the item is, how much it's for, what the cost per item is, the terms of the tender, etc. All of that's critically important. And similarly, in, in clinical trials, where I, I mentioned a little at the outset the importance of registering and publishing your clinical trials and the results, there's immense pressure on, on pharma companies to deliver results for all the research and development that's going on at the moment. But we need to allow that time and the, and the kind of evidence generation. And we also need to incentivize, or rather, well, I suppose it's disincentivize, on bad practice. So the Danish government is now introducing sanctions against pharma companies that fail to publish clinical trial results promptly. And that should cast a light and provide some transparency on, if you like, some of the, the clinical, clinical trials that have not gone quite so well, where there may be negative results. But we need to know those results just as much. We need to know the positive results. I would love to know your thoughts on what can businesses do about this now in particular? Right. I mean, what, what they can do, um, and I, I think this plays into the kind of longer term game of how this whole period and this whole experience is going to influence the private sector, government, civil society discourse. 
businesses play a kind of key role in the social fabric and the social contract of societies. And we've seen some great examples over the last few weeks of businesses acknowledging the role they play and adapting their processes, manufacturing other products or, um, you know, in the UK, um, I don't know, what is it? It's Dyson that are, are manufacturing ventilators. So I think that the key thing that, that businesses can do is to ensure that they are not viewing the crisis as a, you know, as a kind of profiteering opportunity and to make sure that they are continuing to take the usual steps around due diligence, that they aren't shortcutting in the wrong areas. So it's, it, it's about supporting and ensuring that that compliance team is still fully functioning and thoroughly embedded in your whole organization. It's about having the tone from the top that demonstrates that uh, the commitment to doing the right thing, to acting with integrity, to providing strong governance and, and reporting. And I, I think it's, you know, as I said um, a couple of minutes ago, it's about really taking advantage of the opportunity to demonstrate your company's values. What, what is your purpose as a company? What does it look like? How central are our transparency and integrity to those values? You know, we've, we've seen responsible lobbying, payments to government, knowing who the beneficial owner of a third party is. They're, they're all important aspects. And it's going to be very interesting in the months to come to see those that have responded in the most adaptable, but yet socially responsible manner. And I think that it is those companies and that portion of the private sector that will ultimately be judged by shareholders, by the public, and ultimately probably by governments to, to be those key partners for the future. And thinking a bit about the future now, I mean, there's quite a lot of talk about rebuilding already and building back better. I mean, if that's a thing. What do you think that businesses could be doing now or indeed other organisations that could potentially mitigate transparency risks and grasp that opportunity for the future? I mean, it's so difficult. We're all looking into our crystal balls and kind of trying to judge, you know, what the future is, is going to look like. We're seeing researchers, companies, governments adapting to the, you know, to the kind of these new circumstances. And transparency is central to that. And I think one of the areas is around maintaining your focus on your business integrity and your business integrity functions. And PI, our business integrity program recently released an open business report, which highlighted the importance of corporate lobbying and political engagement and how to do that responsibly, beneficial ownership, transparency, really knowing who your owners are and where your suppliers are in, in that kind of ecosystem. The importance of country reporting, country by country reporting, 
and you know and just giving your anti-bribery and corruption and your compliance programs the room and the freedom across your organization to embed the principles for for coming years i mean i think the other interesting thing in in this narrative is that ultimately we're going to be judged by kind of retrospective accountability and it's going to be in the phase of kind of lesson learning when i'm sure that that there will be examples and manifestations of corruption that are are discovered and we will discover that some of that massive spend that governments and that international financial institutions are making has gone awry and has not been directed to to deliver the best health outcomes and the best chances for populations that those examples will will be revealed but for the moment it's about being ready for that accountability and demonstrating your values and being ready to you know to kind of play your part in a collective building back a more powerful structure a more resilient future that 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 has more more trust from from governments and the public and for anybody who is listening to this podcast today we will put the links to the transparency international open business report into the commentary the words that sit beside the podcast uh, wherever you are listening to it rachel my final question today you have so much great advice you have so many points to make but i would i just want you to drill down into just one what would be your one piece of advice to people who are listening to this podcast today i think that the 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 kind of takeaway message needs to be around the risks of cutting corners corners are bound to have to be cut but we mustn't do it at the expense of transparency in the rush to get treatments in the rush to get cures in the rush to get vaccines and we're only as strong as the weakest link in our health systems or indeed as strong as the weakest health system and we need to bear that in mind we need to protect we need to strengthen we need to not take advantage of the current crisis and we need to go into this understanding why transparency is so important committing to delivering it in all its manifestations across all the health value chain and being ready for the accountability that will ultimately come and if we do that then we will ensure that new vaccines are safe and effective that personal protective equipment for health workers is of a high quality that new diagnostics are appropriately uh, regulated and that everything has been done at a fair transparent price for for those that ultimately pay and that's all of us as the kind of global community i think those are my takeaways so it's transparency and why it's so important be open to the risks of corruption and be ready for the accountability that will come 
Well, Rachel Cooper of Transparency International, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 